Once again, this morning we return in our studies in the Word of God to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be entering into Genesis chapter 3 this morning, but I want to begin by reading the last verse of chapter 2, because it forms somewhat of a framework, the last verse that I'm about to read, that chapter, and then the last verse of of, of this passage that I'm about to read, verse 7, it forms something of like a bookends around the passage of our, our, our morning. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. Excuse me, chapter 2 verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Once again, let's pray for the help of God in opening up his word. Holy Father, as we read this sad account, we do so not with a feeling of detachment as if it's irrelevant to us, because we see ourselves there in the garden and all this is taking place. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would so work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit that, that we would not dismiss what we have here in your word, which you've given to us for our safety, for our admonition, that we would not stiff-arm it, that we would not reject it, that we would be tender to its reproofs and its entreaties. We pray to this end that your spirit would be sent upon us in opening up and hearing and practicing your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. As most of you in this room know, a week ago our family returned home after a vacation in the Midwest. Before spending time with our extended family in Iowa, the three of us spent a week in Branson, Missouri. And one of the features of our time in Branson was a visit to the life-sized replica of the front half of the most famous ocean liner of all, the Titanic. And in contrast with the jubilation of the country and gospel music show that we also attended that week, the tour of the Titanic was exceedingly somber. As the Titanic left Southampton, England on its maiden voyage on April 10th of 1912, it did so with great fanfare and jubilation. 
As she entered service, she was the largest ship in the world. In addition to hundreds of immigrants seeking a better life in America and also in Canada, she accommodated some of the wealthiest people in the world. Her first-class accommodations were designed to be the pinnacle of luxury and comfort for that day. These, these accommodations included a gymnasium, a swimming pool, libraries, high-class restaurants, a Turkish bath, opulent cabins, and a lounge decorated in the style of the Palace of Versailles. As we toured this replica of at least part of the ship, this tour included replicas of some of these opulent accommodations, as well as its famous grand staircase in the center of the ship. The Titanic also had the most advanced safety features of the day. It had such things as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors contributing to its reputation as unsinkable. It was equipped to handle 64 lifeboats, enough to handle over 4,000 people, but she thought it was so unsinkable the people thought it was to be so unsinkable that the White Star Line company that owned this ship, they equipped it with only enough lifeboats to carry about 1,178 people, only a third of the capacity of the ship. And making matters worse, when the ship hit an iceberg and started to sink, out of fear that the lifeboats would be swept into the vortex of the sinking ship, Many of the lifeboats were rowed away frantically, only half full, thereby making it impossible for more to be saved and from drowning and perishing. And because of all of these, these instances of lack of foresight, only 710 people survived and around 1,500 perished. The tour also included a list of the occupants of each lifeboat, who survived. And the opportunity, and it was striking that some of these lifeboats was only half full. And also there was the opportunity to stick your hand into salt water, and salt water freezes at a much lower temperature, so this salt water was 28 degrees, and in a moment you could feel that it was going to hurt your hand. You could imagine what it would be like to have your whole body plunged into that water. Heroic stories were also told, such as that of a Christian man that gave his life jacket up to save another person who perished. He gave his life that that person might be saved. But sadly, there were also self-serving stories as well. It was an exceedingly somber tour that filled your heart with great sadness and a lump in your throat. Now perhaps... You have had a similar experience in visiting a Civil War battlefield, realizing that tens of thousands of lives were shed or given up at, at one great battle on that field. Or perhaps in visiting a Holocaust museum, or visiting the 9-11 display in our state museum. But Genesis 3, it records an event that is sadder than all these events combined. It is the saddest chapter in the Bible. It recounts the saddest event in human history, the fall of Adam and Eve, as well as of all mankind together with Adam and Eve. 
The early chapters of the book of Job recount Job's overwhelming grief over the loss of his children, the loss of everything else that he had. The book of Lamentations contains Jeremiah's grief over the fall of Jerusalem, the captivity of his people. Luke tells us of our Savior's grief over the horrors that his people would endure at the hands of the Romans. But the sadness even of these accounts is eclipsed by the sadness of Genesis chapter 3. Now one of the factors that make this saddest of all events is the fact that all of us are personally involved in what this chapter is describing. According to the inspired interpretation of this passage that is given in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. In other words, all sinned in this one man. When Adam sinned, and when he immediately experienced spiritual death, and when the seeds of physical death immediately began to be experienced in his body, every one of us sinned with Adam. Every one of us died with Adam. Genesis 3 It's not just the funeral you see of Adam and Eve, so to speak. It's the spiritual funeral of every single person here in this room. Now you and I, we naturally prefer happy celebrations. We love to join in with David in his jubilant songs of praise. But in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 2 and 3, the wise man says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. So I would beg you not to draw back as we study this chapter. Not to say, well, this is just too sad. Why do you spend so much time here? Let's get on to the the next chapter. I beg you not to think in that way. You are the person at this funeral Your coffin is there. Every one of you are in that coffin. And just as the wreckage of the Titanic lying over 12,000 feet below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean became the coffin of some 1,500 people, this chapter describes the spiritual burial ground of all mankind. This is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Well, the setting of this chapter It also serves to intensify our sadness as we read it. Just as the magnificence of the Titanic intensifies our grief over its loss as we consider it, the contrast between Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3, it does the same thing to us. As we come to this third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst the gemstones, crystal waters, and lush flowers of Eden. A garden in which every creature dwells in delightful harmony with every other creature. The bodies of Adam and Eve were completely untouched by the ravages of the fall. And their one flesh intimacy, it reflected the eternal intimacy of the order of the Holy Trinity. And it foreshadowed the intimacy that Christ would have with his church. Everything was pronounced good by the Creator. Every creature was blessed of God. 
But now life is replaced by death. Harmony is replaced by conflict. Blessing is exchanged for cursing. And so like bookends at the beginning and the end of the verses that we read, a complete lack of shame, which comes at the end of chapter 2, is now exchanged for utter shame and remorse. Chapter 2 and verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Chapter 3 and verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now after reading the wonderful account of the garden in Genesis chapter 2, we say, oh, the things were like that again. When will it be like that again? Why couldn't it have stayed that way? And we ask, how did the world change so terribly from that which it once was? Where did all this evil in the world come from? To a large extent, the philosophical problem of the origin of evil is among the mysteries of God, which God has not fully explained. But in what we are told here is that evil can be traced back at least as far as the rebellion of the man that is described here in this chapter. And we are also told that this rebellion was instigated by a crafty being called a serpent. And in this place, the tempter is made He's called, in the Hebrew, the Nahas, which is the common word for serpent. And it's possible that there's a connection between this word Nahas and the, and the word Nehesetet, which means bronze. In Numbers chapter 21 and verse 9, we read that Moses made a bronze serpent, an expression which puts these two sounding the terms that sound alike together. And later on, this bronze serpent was called Nehushtan, and this connection with this bronze appearance, you see, it suggests that perhaps this was a shiny, luminous serpent which would have arrested Eve's attention on that day. A more sinister nuance is seen in the Hebrew, in the word nahas, when it's compared with the verb nahas, to practice divination. In its noun form, which simply means divination. In the ancient Near East people, they had a paradoxical view of snakes. On one hand, they feared snakes because of their dangerous bites. And on the other hand, they honored them because of the protection that sometimes they would give. So they were treated, these snakes, both as friend and fiend, protector and enemy, and the personification of the sacred as well as the profane. And therefore, snakes were sometimes worshipped, while others were regarded as the incarnation of evil. They were also looked upon back then as a symbol of magic, sometimes bringing evil, sometimes good. But at best, all of these pagan notions, they're, more than, they're not, nothing more than corruptions of the revelation that we have of what we have in this passage and in other passages of the word of God that interpret it. Those notions, they present only a faint picture of what we have here, a creature that was both attractive and evil. Now still, we can't help but asking, how is it possible for a snake to tempt somebody? And apart from scripture, it seems just unbelievable to take this at face value. 
For one thing, it's biologically impossible, so we think, for snakes to talk. It's not in the nature of any animal, actually, to hold a rational conversation using human speech. The previous chapter has emphasized the point that Adam found no animal that corresponded with him. No animal that could, he could talk with, that he could that have a relationship with in an intimate way. So is this just a myth that is not grounded in historical reality? Well, for our answer, we have to turn to the scriptures. The same God that enabled a donkey to speak to Balaam is able to allow a devil to use a serpent as the means of the first temptation. And in the New Testament, we read of evil spirits that inhabit not only people, but also pigs. And as we proved at length in an earlier sermon in this series, the narrative of these early chapters of Genesis bear all the marks of history. So what we have here is a real snake, a a snake that did something in history that was real, and yet a snake that was transformed and used for his purposes by the devil. Now here is a place where the books of Genesis and Revelation interpret each other. In Revelation 12 and verse 9, we read of a serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And again in Revelation 20 and verse 2, we read of the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and he is bound. And the origin of Eve's temptation, therefore, it didn't come from her own thoughts. It didn't start up within her own mind. It came to her from a suggestion, various suggestions, actually, that were from without, namely from Satan. And this temptation, it had a personal being that sought to draw her away from God. The passages that we just quoted from the book of Revelation inform us that the serpent called devil called Satan. He was once in heaven, and he was cast out. The Bible doesn't give us a detailed description of this rebellion that led to the angels, the fallen angels, being cast out of heaven. We think that perhaps this took place sometime after God made the heavens and the earth, and what we read here in Genesis 3. That's about all we know. And of this old deceiver, Jesus said to the Jews, When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And this deceiver apparently occupied a lofty place in the hierarchy of heaven before he fell. And as such, he was endowed with vast intellectual powers. And so Eve is no match for this deceiver. He can easily outwit her. Here in our text, verse 1 tells us that this serpent... And here I quote, was more cunning than any beast of the field, verse 1. This word translated cunning, it appears nowhere else in the book of Genesis. But it frequently is found in the book of Proverbs where it is used to describe those that are prudent or shrewd. The person that possesses prudence, this trait, in the book of Proverbs is commendable. He's contrasted with the fool or with the simple. But in the two places where this word is found in the book of Job, in Job 5.12 and Job 15.5, it carries a different and a negative connotation. It's not the idea of a wise person as opposed to a fool. 
It has the idea of being crafty or cunning. And this is the sense, I think, in which this word is being used here in Genesis 3. And the sly insinuations by which Satan makes his suggestions of evil, they are like the sinuous gliding, you see, of a snake. The process by which his temptations, they find their way, they slide right into Eve's heart. This process is aptly described by this word cunning. But to Eve, the snake doesn't appear as a cunning source of evil. She doesn't see that snake in that way. Now, in the serpent, the devil, you see, is wearing a carefully chosen mask. As Atkinson puts it, he is hidden in the ordinariness and everydayness of a creature in the garden. Now, we run away from snakes. They're okay if they're buying glass in in, in an aquarium or something like that. But we don't like snakes, most of us, and we can't think of them being ordinary creatures that we just kind of like to to chum around with. It's hard for us to appreciate this because we see snakes and know them in their fallen condition as being poisonous, as being deadly, many of them. But remember, this is before the fall. This is before snakes became deadly. And the oppression that's given in Genesis 3 is the oppression of a snake that is exceedingly attractive, you see, to Eve. The devil didn't come as a roaring lion, but as a beautiful, enchanting serpent. And the almost identical spelling of the Hebrew words for serpent and bronze suggests that perhaps the serpent's appearance was quite striking, perhaps as it were almost metallically bright and shining like polished bronze. Deuteronomy 8.15 that, word, that passage, the Hebrew word for seraphim or burning ones, is used to refer to fiery serpents. So it's very possible that Satan concealed himself in the form of a beautiful, shining creature. Our text it divides itself into two uneven parts. In verses 1 through 5, we have the dialogue of temptation. And in verses 6 through 7, we have the folly of transgression. And these two main points are in your outlines in the bulletin. I'm not going to be able to get to the second point, however, this morning. I want to spend our time this morning considering the dialogue of temptation. A dialogue takes place between Satan, you see, and Eve in verses 1 through 5. You see, Satan doesn't come to Eve with a bald-faced proposal. Hey, Eve, I, I got an idea here. Let's go and rebel against God. That's not, that's not his approach. Instead, by means of a clever dialogue, step by step, he leads her to doubt God's word. God's command was unmistakably clear. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is not a single thing about that command that is hard to understand. It's absolutely clear. But Satan doesn't come to Eve and say, Hey Eve, you see that forbidden tree over there? God said you're not supposed to eat of that tree. But you know what? Just go and have a taste. He didn't have, you see, such a crude approach to to tempt her into sinning against God. 
But instead, with the use of carefully chosen questions and comments, he wiggles his way into her heart. It's also significant that he began with the woman. In one sense, he talks to both the man and the woman. I think those interpreters are mistaken to say, well, Eve was was wrong here because she was away from her husband. There's no no evidence that that was the case. In fact, throughout these verses, in the Hebrew, the verbs are all in the second person plural, as Adam and Eve are being addressed together. You, plural, shall not eat, verses 2 and 3. You, plural, will not die, verse 4. And when you, you, plural, eat of it, you, plural, shall be, etc., verse 5. And the woman acts like a spokesperson on behalf of her husband. We may eat, she says in verse 2. And at the very moment when she acts in disobedience and eats the forbidden fruit, instantly we read that she gave it to her husband who was right there with her. The passage says, verse 6. Now, while we cannot prove that Satan singled her out as the weaker vessel, his approach undermined the order that God had ordained. For God had created the woman for the man, and he created her as Adam's helper. And Paul highlights this matter in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. He does this in a passage in which he is instructing the women that God has not called them to be in the church as teachers or rulers, to rule over men or teach men in the church assemblies. For as he puts it there, Adam was first formed and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into, temp- into transgression. Now what Paul says in that place, it implies that God created the woman to have a naturally receptive attitude and quality to be a helper, a supporter, and not to be the one that's the gangbuster, so to speak, in the family. And this is not indicative of some kind of a physical or mental or some kind of a spiritual failing. She's created perfectly, perfectly, and she's as God intended for her in the garden. And there, it isn't that somehow there's something perverse about her women, you see, that made the women the woman easier to be tempted. This isn't, this isn't the emphasis. But Satan, you see, used this God-ordained trait of receptivity for his own advantage. And of the two people, therefore, in the garden, he figured that the woman was more likely to give him a hearing. And it's been one of Satan's devices ever since, you see, to attack us where he sees there might be an apparent weakness or an apparent opening into our hearts. Think of the way that he sought to tempt Jesus in the wilderness at the very point of Jesus' intense hunger after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. At that moment, he tempts him to turn stones into bread. It's exceedingly important that we we notice the strategy of Satan. Now, some of you, you don't naturally spend your time worrying. You're just not the worrying type. You have a hard time understanding why some other people worry so much about this and that. You're generally quiet. You're generally at ease in the various ups and downs of life. You know that the downs always have the ups to follow. You just press on through life. You're not a worrier. And so Satan, he doesn't come to you and tempt you with unbelief or with distrustfulness and, and despair. He tempts you with self-confidence, a self-confidence that fails to depend upon God. He sees your weakness and he tempts you at that point. 
Others of you perhaps tend to be the opposite. You tend to be low in spirit. And you lack the determination and vigor to rise above circumstances that others might. It's not likely, therefore, that Satan is going to endeavor to puff you up with pride in that. Although he tempts all of us with pride in one way or another. But instead, having studied you very well, you see, he discovers this weak point. A proneness to doubt God's assurances that all things indeed will work together for good. So he seeks to drive you to unbelief and to drive you even to despair. On the other hand, among those of you that are listening to this sermon, there's a person perhaps here that fully enjoys the promises of God. You go forth with vigor to tackle what is before you every day. You, you, you can't wait almost to wake up and get on with the next day. That's your personality. So it's less likely that Satan's going to attack you with the temptation of unbelief, but rather to puff you up with proud thoughts of yourself and of your abilities. Or maybe when you're bored, to tempt you to think that you're able to resist temptation and therefore to go surfing on the internet in places where you shouldn't go. So step by step, you see, he sees your weakness and he seeks to inflame your heart with lust. And just as Satan studied Adam and Eve and he carefully launched his attack, he studies you and me. He knows us very well. You need to study yourself as well. You need to take note of those weak spots, those weak places where the walls of defenses of your heart are weak. And at those very points, watch and pray, dear people, lest you enter into temptation. You're most weak, you see, when you're self-confident and you forget how desperately dependent you are upon the help of God's omnipotent grace. You're most strong, on the other hand, when you are fully aware of your weakness and you're crying out to God to deliver you and to keep you from temptation. So Satan began by carefully selecting the woman for his first assault. And having noticed this, I want you to notice with me now the dialogue that takes place between the woman and Satan. And as indicated in your outlines, there are four stages to this dialogue. First of all, there was the serpent's question. Now notice what we read in the last half of verse 1. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now it's been suggested that instead of a question, Satan's words were actually a feigned expression of surprise. A very competent commentator that I think highly of suggests this possible interpretation. As such, when Satan was, he wasn't asking so much of a question, but he was saying something like this, indeed, to think that God said that you're not able to eat of any tree of the garden, an expression of surprise that God would ever, ever do that. But whether it's a, a question or an expression of surprise, it's clear either interpretation comes out in the same place. It's clear that Satan is deviously exaggerating God's prohibition. And he is conveying the impression that God's rule is harsh, even extremely harsh. That God doesn't allow you to, take, to partake of any of the fruit of the garden. Any of the delicious, luscious things, those desserts that are just hanging from the trees in the orchard. 
And what, say, what Satan says, you see, it's a malicious attack on the character of God. His aim is clear. He wants to create the impression in the mind of the woman that God is mean-hearted. And he is obsessively jealous over his orchard. And God had generously provided, you see, of every tree in the garden except one for her and for her husband. But Satan implies that the opposite is true. He's trying to keep you from all of it. Every tree. Instead of making God out to be the beneficent provider that he is, Satan portrays him as a cruel oppressor. Now we should also notice that underlying Satan's question is the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. This is an important point for us to notice here. Up to this moment, such a thought had never entered Eve's mind that she would ever question something that God had said. But now is this intoxicating thought that's been suggested to her, the thought that a man and a woman could sit in judgment over God's words and decide which ones they want to accept and which ones they want to reject. And this proud disposition, this is what reigns supreme, dear people, among the scholars of universities and the think tanks and the political pundits of our day. They all have this same characteristic that they can sort out the good from the bad. They are wise, far wiser than God's word. And above all, the so-called wise men of our day, they think with their so-called progressive ideas, they have advanced far beyond the primitive and oppressive ideas of God's word. And even among evangelical Christians, the notion is being entertained that the standards of the Bible, after all, are quite antiquated. And that now we are more enlightened than believers, the believers that, for instance, first came to the shores of America, those Puritans and their strict standards. We've got more enlightened views now. We're advanced, you see. And the, the suggestion is even that we've been advanced beyond the apostles. The feminist movement has taught them, you see, that Paul was a male chauvinist. And modern psychologists have shown them that, God's gen- that, that one's gender is no longer determined by your anatomy and by your chromosomes. We've got more progressive ideas, you see, than what we find in the Bible. Now, what we even find in nature. Well, in the garden, Satan, you see, unleashed this notion that men and women can sit in judgment over God's word. And they can figure out what they want to receive and what they don't want to receive. Sifting out the good from the bad or the bad from the good. And oh yeah, there's some, there's some good things in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, we'll all go by. It's kind of nice to be good to people so the way that you would want them to be good to you. And, uh, and, and things like that. Are, we find some things that are helpful in the Sermon on the Mount. But most of the teaching of the Bible, after all, it represents the systemic oppression, you see, of an old era. And even among evangelicals, this sort of thinking has made its subtle inroads. I remember Pastor Allen relating his experience at a large gathering of pastors. And when he pointed out, as he was discussing a certain issue, of what Paul taught about it, uh, that certain matter, the church leader that he was speaking with said, well, that was Paul's opinion. In other words, we could figure out whether it was a good opinion or not. Paul, that was Paul's opinion. I got a different opinion. And you see, even church leaders can fall prey to such thinking. 
Likewise, Satan is going to come to you. He does come to you. And he puts it into your head that while some precepts of God are perfectly fine for other people, the way you're put together and the particulars of your circumstance, you see, make your situation very different. He would suggest the thought, oh yeah, it'd be best if you could find a life partner that shares your faith. But the older you get, the slimmer the pickings get. So you gotta, you got to kind of little, be a little more accommodating and not so strict about who you're going to marry and who you're going to date. And surely the God that made you, he wants you to be happy. And the man that doesn't share your faith, he makes you feel so special. And how could it be wrong to want to spend a life with such a nice guy? Surely then, there are exceptions to God's world rules about who we're to marry, who we're not to marry. Or maybe he would come to you with a specious argument. And since you don't have access to the pleasures of marital intimacy, surely an, an occasional escapade with one of the women in the office, you see, surely that would be understandable so that your needs might be met. After all, why would God, why would God keep you, so to speak, from all the trees of the garden, so to speak? What kind of a God would do this to you with all of your desires that you have in your, your nature? Only for God to say to you, I forbid you to have any of it. You see, that's the way he tempts us, just like he tempted Eve. Of all the trees, God's holding out against you, you see. And Satan has used such distortions of God's word millions and millions of times ever since. Right there in the garden, filled with trees, loaded with luscious fruits, filled with beautiful sights and sounds and smells, in that very place, of all places, Satan has the gall to portray God's generosity as stinginess. And for thousands of years, he's been perfecting this distortion. He doesn't come to you with the brazen suggestion that God is not good. He doesn't just say it that way. He just sows seeds of mistrust in your mind. He puts a subtle question in your mind. Well, if God wants me to enjoy the delights of those things that he has made... Why would he withhold from me that thing that would please me the most? The great issue that's at stake here is this. Are you going to surrender your thoughts and your desires in all things to God and his word? Or are you going to be the judge over what is right what's wrong? God has given you an abundance of lawful enjoyments. But then there is that one piece of forbidden fruit you see. Satan would tempt you to think that whether or not you partake of this forbidden fruit, this isn't such a big deal after all. Your circumstances are a little different after all. And this is what he does with you and me. He touches us in those areas or that area of, of that one area perhaps of enjoyment concerning which we would wish that God would not trouble us about that particular area. We'll give him everything else. But we'll hold on to this one part of our life, ourselves. In his book, How the World Began, German theologian and preacher from the mid-20th century, Helmut Tilke, he writes this. The fact is that all of us have sectors in the territory of our life which we are quite content to leave to God. 
But each of us also has a point which we will try by no means to let God approach. This point may be my ambition where I am determined to beat my way to success in my career at any price. It may be my sexuality to which I'm determined to give rein no matter what happens and no matter what it costs. It may be a bottomless hatred towards one of my fellow men which I literally nurse and which gives me a kind of sensual pleasure which then comes between me and God and robs me of my peace. God can have everything but not this one thing. And so it is. Some have it some secret sin, some treasured possession, some romantic attachment, some bitter resentment. In the context of your life, it seems, well, this is just an insignificant thing in, in comparison to all the other ways that which I please God. Just this one forbidden thing. But it's at that very point that your trust and your submission to God in his word, submitting to him that he would know what's best for you, it's at that point that that submission, that that trust is put to the test. And if you won't let God be God in that one area of your life, no matter how trivial it might seem to be, then you don't really trust him. You don't really submit to him in what matters the most to you. There is no escape, writes George MacDonald. There is no heaven with a little hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go. Every hair and feather. We've looked at Satan's question. And now I want to at least begin to consider, and we're not going to get through even this first main point. I want you to notice with me Eve's revisions. We read of them in verses 2 and 3. Let's read those verses together. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat to the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now the serpent's distorted question gave Eve the perfect chance to set the serpent straight. She should have known better. She should have known that this, what he said disagreed with what God had said. But what does she do? Instead, as Moses faithfully records, in her mind already having toyed with Satan's distortion of God's word, she descends into her own revisions of God's word. And there are three revisions that she makes. First of all, she diminished God's word. God had said of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Chapter 2 and verse 17. But Eve leaves out the word every. A word that expresses God's lavish generosity. All these trees, you see. She leaves that word out. She simply says we may eat the tree to the truths of the garden. And by leaving that word every out, by diminishing God's word, she diminishes the divine generosity that's set forth. And by leaving out this word every, she discounts that generosity. And already, you see, secretly in her heart, she's beginning to agree with the serpent. Something already bad is happening in her heart. She diminished God's word. Secondly, she added to God's word. 
God had said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But Eve added this about the tree. You shall not touch it. The fruit of the tree of the which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, she says. This isn't anywhere in chapter 2 where God actually said what he said to Adam and Eve, to Adam at first. And this may seem to be an innocent addition, but it showed that she had begun to entertain Satan's lie that God is really is, is being a little severe here. Think of it, she says in her heart. God won't even allow us to touch the tree. But God had never said, neither shall you touch it. And so by adding these words, she magnifies God's strictness. She says, in effect, just, just touch the tree and zap, you're dead. That's the kind of God he is. She didn't quite say it that way, but she's beginning to entertain these negative thoughts of God. In her comment, it suggests that God is so harsh that even an inadvertent slip is going to bring instant death. In this addition, it might seem like just an innocent embellishment, but it paves the way, you see, for the serpent to press the point even further. And the fact that she makes the command stricter by this addition, it shows that she's already begun to entertain suspicion about the goodness of God and about the reasonableness of his command. And this tendency to add to God's word, it's been passed down, to every rising generation. So much so that our children do this. And we don't really have to train them to do this. As a father, you say to your daughter, you and your friend Susie have been too rowdy tonight, so Susie's going to have to go home early. You say that. You warn them about not being so rowdy, and you keep your word. So, so your daughter runs to your, to, to your wife and, the, and she cries, Daddy says I can never have Susie over ever again. What's she doing? She's doing this exact same thing. She's making it more severe than what you would say. And I suppose at some point there were members of certain of our churches that tended to think that the efforts of pastors to visit in the homes of the sheep was too intrusive. And so somehow the rumor got out that when Reformed Baptist pastors visited the people, they opened the cupboard doors in the homes where they visited, and they checked all the cupboards out to make sure everything was in perfect order. And so I was stunned when a couple that we were interviewing for church membership brought this rumor up. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't imagine any of my brethren doing this kind of thing. But it was from the idea, you see, this is too intrusive to have pastors that really get involved in our lives and try to help us out. This false rumor, it illustrates the manner in which when we don't like a prohibition or a warning or some element of accountability, we magnify its strictness. We suppose that because of the unreasonableness of the command or the expectation, our culpability is mitigated. And so we must beware, therefore, lest we imagine that God's requirements are unreasonable, that his requirements are overly strict, we must beware of the tendency of adding to God's word in this way and thereby excusing our disobedience. Beware of the tendency to think that the Bible, its call for holiness is too puritanical. It's too strict. It's just unreasonable, un unrealistic. 
What about Jesus' insistence of forgiving 70 times 7? Oh, that's a little bit difficult to do. I don't know if I can ever do that. I, I think that's a little bit unreasonable. What about Jesus' teaching that a lustful look is hard adultery? Do you take it seriously? Or do you just excuse yourself saying, well, I guess we're all going to have to be monks then. I, 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 it's just hopeless. I can't, I can't. I can't keep that. Beware of adding to God's precepts an interpreted strictness that is not there. And then I want you to notice with me a third revision. It was this. She softened God's word. She made it more strict in one way, and she softened it in another way. God's command forbidding eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was reinforced by these words, chapter 2 and verse 17, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the threat. But Eve left out the word surely. Her rendition of the threat is this. Instead of you shall surely die, it's replaced with lest you die. She softens it, you see. And the certainty of death, it's removed, you see. And in the same manner, sinners, they seek to soften what God says about eternal punishment. And even as Christians, we find ourselves willing to dabble with sin sometimes. And we have this thought that in our own experience, the consequences are not going to be quite so severe. It's not going to be all that bad if we disobey. And so we do what Eve did. We soften God's threats and his word. Well, we're not going to have time to consider the second and the third and the fourth elements of this dialogue. The revisions paved the way for a third part of the dialogue, the serpent's contradiction. And then this in turn paved the way for the fourth segment, his insinuation. It's insinuation in verse 5 that God is just doing this because he's a hard God, he's strict, he's, he, he just doesn't want you to have any enjoyment. So we're going to have to, to wait for our next exposition to go over those, those aspects of the dialogue. But I want to just conclude with a couple thoughts. The first is that Eve's revisionism, it exemplifies the way in which growing doubt in God's word naturally spawns this, this biblical revisionism, revising God's word. When we trim away God's word by diminishing his promises, when we soften the threats of God's word, these revisions, they're a manifestation of our growing unbelief. And our attempts to revise what God has said, they pave the way for full-blown transgression, as we're going to see in the next sermon. But these attempts to fiddle with the corners of God's word, along with the sin that is sure to follow with fiddling with God's word, these things demonstrate that the bottom, you see, the bottom of our transgressions is this problem. It's our unbelief. Eve is believing the devil more than God at this point. And that's what we do when we give way. If we really believe what God says in his word, we would stay away from the sin. We minimize his promises by our less than enthusiastic rehearsal of the wonderful things contained in God's promises. And when we sing such hymns as we opened our worship service with, these are to be a means of grace, not only a means of giving glory to God, your heart is to be strengthened with thoughts of God's lavish goodness. We praise him so that we will serve such a good God and be faithful to such a good God. But when we minimize, you see, these things and 
just kind of go off in the land of Nod as the song is being sung. We miss what would be a help to us. As R. Kent Hughes puts it, our colorless renditions of God's glorious promises blanches their polychrome wonders to a dull monochrome. Ho-ho! And when we do this, we open the door for Satan to march right in with his insinuations concerning God's supposed harshness in giving us his commands. And again, we also prepare the way for the devil to take over when we exaggerate those commands that we don't like. And then I want to say, by way of a second concluding point, that when, like Eve, we revise what God says, what are we doing? We are toying with sin. Leroy Imes relates this, rattlesnakes are fairly common where I live. I encounter one almost every summer. It's a frightening experience to see a rattlesnake coiled, looking at you, ready to strike. He's lightning quick and accurate. I have a simple two-point program for handling rattlesnakes. Shun and avoid. And they're basically the same. It's as simple as that. You don't need much insight to figure out what to do with something as dangerous as a diamondback rattler. You don't mess around. And so the lesson that we should take from this is this. Stop toying with sin by rationalizing about it, your needs as a man. And the wonderful way which that forbidden woman perhaps could, could fulfill those needs that are just not being met right now. Stop toying around with, with sin by getting near the rattlesnake of lust in your, in your heart or on the internet. And if covetousness is your besetting sin, stop toying with that rattlesnake by spending hours and hours and hours gazing at all wonderful, beautiful homes being fixed up and the like and using the excuse, well, you've got to be a good excuse, a good, a good, good steward of what God has given you. You need to recognize where the danger is for you and stay away. I'm not saying, by the way, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that show or whatever it is that might be like that, it's a sin to watch it. I'm not saying that. I'm asking you to consider your own heart. And finally, let me point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he resisted temptation. How? Not by fudging the word, not by misquoting the word. He resisted it by quoting it accurately and interpreting it accurately. In his case, the temptations came. And they were not in connection with his own revisions, you see, of God's word, like in Eve's case. But instead, the revisionism was all on Satan's part. And again, Jesus appealed to the word of God as God intended it to be understood. And I would urge you, my dear friend, when you have fallen, confess your sin with grief to God and plead for the righteousness of your divine champion the Lord Jesus Christ. As I preached this sermon, as I studied and wrote the sermon, a lump has been in my throat. So I'm not talking about something abstract. I'm talking about something that hits home with me. It tells me of all my failures, the ways in which I have toyed with sin, ways in which I have offended God, and yet God doesn't want us to just stay in this saddest portion of the, of the word of God. 
Every one of us, we can see our entanglement with the dialogue of temptation. And as we're going to see in our next sermon, the folly of what follows after this dialogue. But it's not God's intention, you see, just to swallow you up in sorrow over your sin. It's his intention to bring you to this serious subject, to the saddest of all subjects, to drive you to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there is perfect righteousness, in whom there is perfect forgiveness, in whom there is grace to resist temptation from this day forward. So therefore, don't go home and wallow around in, 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 your, in your unbelief, but go to the Lord Jesus Christ for help and for salvation. And those of you that are still in your sins, you haven't come to this Lord Jesus. May this be the day in which this passage drives you to that one place where you can find salvation from sin. And that place is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've revealed to us this sad account. We confess that we could wish that it weren't so personal to us. We could wish that it was just an interesting story to read. But Lord, you have revealed this to us because what Eve did, we do. The transgression that her husband entered into became our transgression. And yet we do thank you, Lord God, that you've given us a guidebook. This precious book that we read and study Sunday by Sunday and hopefully read day by day. This is a book that tells us of the right way. Help us, Lord, to stick to it, not be deceived. Help us not to sit in judgment over your word, sifting out what we like and what we don't. But above all, help us to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is salvation and deliverance, in him and in him alone. Have mercy upon our poor souls, we do pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.